friends, let's open in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to finish chapter 18 today. We're going to read the second half of it. I'm going to begin in verse 17. Hear now God's word. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, Let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you and all the servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and I have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. And Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave his daughter Michael, gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Let's pray together. (coughs) Heavenly Father, you say that the kingdom does not exist in talk, but in power. And I know that for the next 20 minutes we're going to hear talk, but we want power from you. We want your spirit to fill us and to bring this power of your kingdom to bear on us that we might be changed into the image of your son. And so we beg for that. We plead for that in his name, Jesus' name. Amen. This is an intense passage. I mean, this passage, chapter 18, it has everything that you could possibly want from a good story. We have a king, we have a court, we have these beautiful princesses, we have this handsome, ruddy, young suitor, we have some marriages, and then we have a bag of 200 Philistinian foreskins. If you don't know what a foreskin is, you need to ask your mama. Um, but apparently between the services during Juice and Jesus, my son asked John during Juice and Jesus, what's a foreskin? So we're going to have that conversation later today. This is a gory passage. This is intense. And um, I wanted to, as I began studying it this week, just hear how others had reflected on, taught on, thought about this passage. And so I punched into a Google search, 200 Philistinian foreskins, which I don't readily recommend for you to do. Um, but one of the first things that popped up was a blog that was entitled Dwindling in Unbelief. 
And this is a skeptic who is reading through their Bible and comes to passages like this and writes on the blog, this is one of those places in my Bible that drives me further from God and not closer to him. Well, then the next blog that I saw was entitled Bible Verses Rarely Read on Sunday. Subtitle, Bible Verses That Preachers and Religious Teachers Often Ignore. (laughs) And so I was like, that's great. At least we're going to read it publicly on Sunday morning. But I was still feeling stuck, and so I go where I always go when I feel stuck exegetically, and that is to a Yahoo chat room. And I said, what, what are people there saying about this passage? And someone had already jumped in and asked the question, and this is an interesting way to frame it, why did David kill 200 Philistines instead of converting 200 Philistines? And that was interesting, but I started to read through the responses, and somebody with the screen name, The Joker, They jumped in and they answered, this is straight from his mouth or her mouth, since when has anything in the Bible been about avoiding bloodshed? That's an interesting response. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot to unpack there theologically and emotionally with the Joker, but that's actually the beginning of a very good point because if you kind of bring to the Bible a presupposition that killing is always wrong, then the Bible will always fail because it does not share your presupposition. God is a holy and a just and a true God, and those who offend him in wickedness, he does bring swift and total judgment. This is not violence as we speak about violence. This is certainly not murder. This is the just hand of God against those who have offended him. And so God, in this era, he uses Israel's military to enact his judgment upon these people. Now we know in this story, it's not God who's asking David to do this. It's Saul who's asking David to do this, but still God gives David success and gives him continued success because God is bringing judgment on the Philistines. I read this past week in Ezekiel 25 verse 15. This is prophesied 400 years after the story we're reading. The Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending enmity. We're not just talking about a border dispute between Israel and the Philistines. We are talking about a wicked nation with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending enmity. And God brings his judgment upon, in our story, 200 Philistines. Today I want to do three things with this passage. I want to first talk about the story, understand the story and where it's going and how it leads. And then I want us to see David as a type that is a shadow, a prefigurement of Christ. And then I want us to look to Jesus, who is the antitype. He is the fulfillment of everything that our passage points towards. And that'll make more sense as we go. But let's talk about the story. Saul, in this story, he's got a big problem. Saul, he hates David, he loathes David, he envies David, he wants David dead. But the entire nation, they adore this young and rising hero. I mean, Judah and Israel, they love and adore David. They've seen his victories. We learned at the beginning of the chapter that Jonathan, his son, loves David. And now we're going to read that Michael, his daughter, has fallen in love with David. Everybody loves David. And so even though Saul hates David, he can't kill him outright. And so what ensues is like this slippery game of thrones where Saul begins to think, if I draw him close and I make him a son-in-law give him one of my daughter's hands in marriage, then I can pit him against the Philistines and maybe they'll do my dirty work for me. Maybe they will kill David and then I don't have to. It's this 
slippery, dark scene in the courtroom of Saul. And so he approaches David with three offers. He gives him three offers to be his son-in-law. And the first, he offers his daughter Merab on the condition that David, verse 17, will be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. If you do this, you'll have my daughter Merab. Now, David, he defers to this offer. But we said last week that um, Saul is riddled with envy, that envy, it objectifies the people that it envies. It no longer sees them as a person, but as a means to an end and something that they want. And you see that threefold here because Saul is beginning to use his daughter Merab as a tool or a weapon against David. He's objectifying her. He's objectifying David because he wants David dead by the hands of the Philistines, but he's also objectifying God because in verse 17 he says, I want you to fight the Lord's battles, but Saul himself is not fighting those battles, nor cares for that kind of obedience, and so he objectifies all of these parties. Now, we don't know how much of this David understands, but he at least defers in humility and says, is it a small thing for me to be the king's son-in-law? I'm not going to do that. And so Saul gives his daughter Merab to Adriel, somebody who lives across the Jordan River far from David, and she marries him, and her family will actually meet a very brutal end in 2 Samuel. Well, Saul is still looking for his inn, and then he learns that his second daughter, Michael, she's actually fallen in love with David, and he thinks to himself, this is perfect. So he tries again, and he tells David this, and then he sends his servants, and David, once again, he defers and says in humility, I have no reputation, and I also don't have any money. Now, I think what's going on here is we're talking about a bride price. We're talking about a dowry. So in David's day, if a suitor wanted to marry somebody, if the husband-to-be wanted to take a bride's hand in marriage, he would pay an agreed-upon amount to the father-in-law, and then he would receive her hand in marriage. Um, that happened in David's culture. That happens today in many cultures. We have Iraqi friends who live here in Colombia as they study. And the husband had to give an agreed upon price, which was in gold. It was a certain weight of gold. And he had to give it to his bride in essence saying, if I do anything to betray the trust of this marriage, this is security for you. This is a down payment that you will be provided for. And so that happens now. Well, David... When he starts to think about that, I mean, he's the youngest of eight sons. There's no hope that he could ever pay a bride price. And so he says, in humility, but he might also be intimating, even if I wanted to do this and marry Michael, I couldn't possibly afford to do something like that. So the servants, they take that, they go back to Saul, they tell him, and now Saul has his window. He sees this opportunity where David is willing to do this, but he can't do this. And so Saul communicates to his servants, go back to David and tell him, I don't want any money to take my daughter's hand in marriage, but I want him to do this. I want him to enact vengeance on my enemies, verse 25, by killing 100 Philistines and taking their foreskins. Now for Saul to even say something like that, for him to even mention something like that, it gives us this window into just how brutal this world is that these stories are taking place. We had already read in chapter 11 that when King Nahash, he came across the Jordan River to the city of Jabesh Gilead, he said, even if you surrender, I want to gouge out the right eye of every citizen in this town. That's absolutely brutal. But this is what other nations were doing to each other. That other nations were in victory collecting heads and hands and worse to prove that they were victorious. 
The, pro- the, the fact that David has no problem jumping up with his men and going out and killing 200 Philistines, double the asking price, and bringing that back to Saul, further underscores that this is constant battle between these two nations. Now, these 200 Philistines woke up this morning and had breakfast like any other morning, and they were living their lives as they had always lived. And just like the Amalekites who were wiped out by Israel, David and his men, they descend upon them. And in the twinkling of an eye, like a thief in the night, judgment is enacted on them, and they die, and they meet their maker. And they receive judgment. This happens in this passage, and this is the hand of God at work through David. But from Saul's perspective, this entire thing has completely backfired. He thought this is a way to get David killed, but David actually won a great victory, double the victory that I was proposing, and now he's got my daughter Michael's hand in marriage, and the Lord is giving him great success, and the entire thing falls back on Saul's head. Verse 30 ends with this summary. The commanders of the Philistines are coming out, but David has more and more success. He is highly esteemed before the people. David is showing us what Jesus is like. David is a type of Jesus. That means that David is a foreshadow. He's a picture. He's a signpost. He is living a thousand years before Jesus is born. And yet when we see him and his life, we get a picture of what Jesus is like and what Jesus is going to do. We've already talked a lot about David, and we've talked a lot about David as a type of Christ, but we'll continue to do so because the Bible does. You know, the Bible mentions David by name a thousand times. He is named a thousand times in our Bibles, and every single New Testament author, except for Peter and James, referenced David in connection to Jesus. They do this again and again. In fact, David has pride of place in our New Testament because the very first verse of our New Testament, the great Christmas passage in Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of of David. David is a type of Jesus. David is showing us Jesus. He, here's how the type works in our passage. Uh, back one chapter, in chapter 17, verse 26, we read this. The, Goliath, he's blaspheming, he's threatening Israel, and David asks, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David asks this question. The soldiers, they're standing by and they say, well, the person who does this, they're going to get wealth. They're going to get one of Saul's daughter's hands in marriage. And their family is going to be tax-free. And so when David does this, when he slays Goliath, when he goes on to rout the entire Philistine army, and today, now in our passage, when he drops 200 bodies, he fulfills this mission. David, he enacts circumcision, he removes reproach, and he takes the hand of his bride. Just like Jesus will use the cross, which is a sign of shame, to inflict open shame on powers and principalities, so David uses circumcision, which is a sign of belief, to expose and judge the unbelief of the Philistines. It's this bold and dense twist in which shame and unbelief are now turned back on the perpetrators and used to judge them. Like Jesus, David removes the reproach of Israel. 
Like Jesus, David takes the hand of his bride. Like Jesus, David humbles himself and is highly exalted. David shows us Jesus. He's like Jesus, and he shows us who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do. But even as we begin to talk about that, even as we see the Bible make these connections, even as we're reminded that the New Testament makes this connection again and again and again, we realize that we can't go too far down that road. David is like Jesus, but we know that David is not Jesus. The type can never be the anti-type. The type can never fulfill everything it promises. And we might even now, even in this chapter, start to see cracks in the type. We might start to see weaknesses in David that will be his undoing. In verse 21, Saul learns that his daughter, Michael, she loves David, and he thinks to himself in that verse, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him. My question is this, what did Saul see in David that he thought that his daughter who loved him might be a snare for him? Had Saul, even in these early days of David being around his court and being in his military, did Saul see anything in David in which he thought David's weakness, David's undoing is going to be his lust and his desire for women? Did he know that at all when he was offering his daughter as a snare to him? We know that his hunch is going to prove true. We know that this is going to be a besetting weakness and a sin for David. We know that by the time he assumes the throne in Jerusalem, David will have acquired for himself seven wives. He will fall and he will fall hard to his lusts. In fact, it will take him to new lows because we know that he will pursue the wife of another man, Bathsheba. And get this, David is going to do to Uriah, what Saul has tried to do to him. David is going to get enemies to do his dirty work and murder Uriah, which is the same thing that Saul is trying to do with the Philistines that so disgust us about Saul right now. Saul is no better than a Philistine, but David in his sin and at his lowest lows, he's no better than a Saul. We can get caught up in this typology, this type, this um, spiritual giant in our midst, this saint who's beloved. We can cheer for them and adore them and be near to this person, but we must always know that this person will fail. They're not the fulfillment. He's a type. He's a foreshadow. He's a sign, but he is not the thing itself, and he will fail us. But to recognize that is to see that the fulfillment of what David is promising in his life will be all the sweeter when we look to Jesus. Jesus himself is the antitype. He is the one to whom David points. He says in Revelation twenty two sixteen, some of the last words of the Bible, I, Jesus, am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. And he is those things. David, he's just a candle. He's showing us very dimly in this dark room what possibilities might be in the kingdom. But Jesus, that root and descendant of David, he is the bright morning star who shines and shows us the world as it will be. He is the fulfillment of those things. 
Michael, David's wife, she got to see this candle. She got to experience in part what it's like to find this fulfillment in Jesus because as an Israelite, Michael would have experienced reproach, especially reproach from without. She knew what it was like to endure those 40 days of Goliath blaspheming against the people of Israel and to bear that reproach. She knew what it was like for her people to falter against the oppression of the Philistines and to feel that reproach rest upon her. But because we also learned that her dad is now going to try to use her as a pawn and a weapon against David, we might understand that there was little love between father and daughter, and Michael might have known very intimately what it was like to bear reproach from within her own own family. Michael knew what it was to bear reproach. But when David wins these victories and he wins her hand in marriage, she experiences what it's like to go from reproach to have that removed and to be put into a place of prominence. That is what it is like to be wed to Jesus. That is what it is like to be the bride of Christ. When Jesus wins his victory over his enemies, using the cross to shame principalities and powers, he says in Colossians 1.22, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus removes our reproach. He does that, and we experience that. A couple of weeks ago, I got to perform a wedding for two of our members, and this is a wonderful time. Anytime we get around weddings, our hearts and minds, they should go to Ephesians chapter 5, because in that chapter, we have the great parallel between what we do here on earth, between a husband and a wife, and how they marry one another and become one flesh is really a parable and a type itself of that great eternal marriage in which Jesus prepares for himself a bride in us, the church. Now, I get that analogy. I understand that the church is Jesus' bride and that he's going to be the groom and he's going to receive us in marriage and that makes for good theology. What I cannot understand is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, which says this, He will present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. How is that possible? I don't know if you're like me, but I did not wake up this morning thinking of myself as the bride of Christ without spot or wrinkle or blemish. We, like Michael, we believe the lies from without and from with within so often. We do not hear and dwell upon these truths that Jesus is preparing this bride in such a way for himself. Well, at this wedding, it was a beautiful scene. It was a farm in Sumter, and it was very dramatic. There's a pavilion up at the top of a hill, and then it comes down into a valley, and there are trees all around that are turning colors in the fall. Just a beautiful scene, and we're all seated down in the valley facing the trees, and the grandmothers are seated, and the mothers are seated, and the music changes, and the mother of the bride stands, and she turns to look back up this sloping hill, up the stairs of the pavilion, to see the bride and her father standing there. And we all turn and look the same direction. And my first thought as I watch this just sloping, dramatic scene is, 
that's a really, really long way for her to walk. I mean, to get from there all the way down here, that's going to be a long walk. But my second thought was this. This is where this whole thing is headed. That Jesus, in winning this victory, he is preparing a bride for himself without spot or wrinkle, or blemish, and as beautiful as this bride now appears who approaches us, that is what Jesus is doing on behalf of his church. And as giddy as the groom here stands waiting to receive his bride and to become one flesh with her, so Jesus awaits to be wed to his church to nourish and cherish her, Ephesians 5 says. Jesus, the son of David, he will do this. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would be caught up in this dramatic scene that you will wed yourself to us through your son Jesus, that you have won this great victory. You have shamed principalities and powers that you might slay those who bring reproach and draw us to yourself. Lord, I pray that we would live in light of gospel truth that we are without spot and without wrinkle, blameless before you in Jesus Christ. We praise him in his name. Amen.